Today is the 28th of February 2017 and we're going to continue um, with the theme of love and faith. This is the second part of what will probably be a three-part talk and uh, it's something that's come out of, of my time in retreat, some of the things I was reading and, and um, practicing with. Um, and for those of you who weren't here when I gave part one, just um, give you a little bit of background to sort of bring us into, into this uh, talk. Um, on, the, on the first night of, of the three-month retreat, I had a dream in which an old Chinese woman uh, who appeared at the end of a long forest road asked me to show her my lineage and I replied, Linji, which is the, ch the Chinese for uh, Master Rinzai, in the Japanese pronunciation. And the teachings of this particular master had been important to me in a retreat I did many years ago, um, and especially a line of his, quite a famous line, where he said, what is it that ails you? Lack of faith in yourself is what ails you. And so this became one of his teachings and his his writings became one of the sort of threads that uh, went through my um, retreat. When I went to, to Sudarshana Loka, I took a book of his teachings with me. And um, last week we read, or, or no, it's now, three, I guess three weeks ago when we had last had Teisho, I read some passages from um, Burton Watson's translation, the Zen teachings of Master Linji. And I'm not going to read um, much from here, but just one to give people who weren't here last time a, a bit of flavour, and it really points to the theme of these of these talks, which we'll explore. Um, and here's what he says: When students today fail to make progress, where's the fault? The fault lies in the fact that they don't have faith in themselves. If you don't have faith in yourself, then you'll be forever in a hurry trying to keep up with everything around you. You'll be twisted and turned by whatever environment you're in, and you can never move freely. But if you can just stop this mind that goes rushing around moment by moment, looking for something, then you'll be no difference from the ancestors and Buddhas. Do you want to get to know the ancestors and Buddhas? They're none other than you, the people standing in front of me here listening to this lecture on the Dharma. Students don't have enough faith in themselves, and so they rush around, looking for something outside themselves. But even if they get something, all it will be is words and phrases, pretty appearances. They'll never get at the living thought of the ancestors. So Master Rinsai here is pointing to the importance of direct experience, of getting to the, the essence so not the, not the historical ancestor, but the, really the ancestor who, or the Buddha who dwells, who dwells in us. And, and he talks here about how important faith is. It's said in Zen that we, we need to have three things to practice. Great faith, 
great doubt or perplexity and great determination. Great faith that we um, can realize our Buddhahood, that we, we can wake up, but also this, this great perplexity because we don't know what that is, what that um, awakened nature is. It's not, it's not functioning in our lives. We do all kinds of things which are painful to ourselves and to others. And so this gives rise to a perplexity. If I, if I am, in fact, my true nature is awakening, why don't I live that moment by moment? You put these two together, great faith and great perplexity, and if we can hold those two, then they themselves kind of generate the great determination, this, this, this persistent effort to uncover our awakened nature. If we can, if we can hold all these three, then it's a, it's a, um, it's like, it's like jet fuel. It's powerful propeller for our, for our practice. We talked a little bit in the last talk about, well, this is all very well hearing this, but what if I don't feel like I've got much faith? How do I generate it? And to look into this further um, from, a, from a new, what was for me a new perspective, I'm going to turn to a, um, a book called, called um, White Sail, Crossing the Ways of Ocean Mind to the Serene Continent of the Triple Gems. And this is by a, a Tibetan teacher called um, Thinley Norbu. And um, there's a little bit on the back of the book about him. He's, a, he's described as a preeminent teacher of the Nyingma lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. He's written a couple of other books, one called The Small Golden Key and another one called Magic Dance. And I think we got to the point last time where I mentioned one of the statements um, that he made. I think we got this far. Um, the intention to have faith generates faith. The intention to have faith generates faith. It's a very profound statement. And it points to the, the preeminence of our mind in shaping our life. Every time, every time we sit down and do zazen, which is, in a sense, to do nothing, that's an act of faith. Um, that each of us sits down and crosses our legs and, and turns the mind to the breath or the koan is evidence that we, we already have faith. We wouldn't, we wouldn't do this if we didn't. And when we sit, when we sit sincerely, then we are 
opening our minds to experience. This is really, especially in koan, where this, the, the essence of questioning is the cultivating of an open mind, a sense of wonder. You can't, you can't question um, and keep your mind completely closed off. So if our mind is open, then we're open to experience. And true faith comes from experience. It comes from seeing, not from belief, not from taking on some belief because somebody else says it's true, but from seeing for ourselves. This is, this is where our faith comes from. When, when Rich and I first started um, sitting, uh, when we, we had this little zendo in the basement of the house where we were living on the North Shore, we'd, um, at a certain point we started having one-day sittings um, we'd, very similar to what we do now, except in a tiny little basement room, um, starting early in the morning and then having breakfast and lunch. and. Um, It'd be usually be maybe three or four or five people sitting together, and and we both in, in those days we found them a real slog. They they were just mostly um, sleepiness, pain, and restlessness. Those those are the main things that we experienced every time we did these things. Lots of pain in the knees. We were you know we were pretty new to the practice. We didn't have a teacher there, though we would play um, uh, tapes, um, cassette tape recordings of, of tape shows. Um, so they were always like that. They, they didn't give a lot of satisfaction. But often, the day after, the next day, we would just notice that our minds were somehow lighter and clearer. And so even though the experience of, of, of holding these one-day sittings was not great, we, we, this experience we had after would strengthen our faith that, that something was happening, even if we were mostly just struggling. Um, the practice was working on us. In, this, um, in the teachings of this Thinli Nobu, he, um, gives a, um, a Tibetan Buddhist take on, on faith and relates it very intimately to love. In Tibetan Buddhism, in the Vajrayana, there's much more of an emphasis on love and devotion um, than there is in Zen, or at least it's much more overt. I'd say it's there in Zen, but it's 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 not spoken of very much. Um, and in the Vajrayana, some of you may be aware that the the, the 
there are a very vast number of different practices that people do, different kinds of meditation. But one very important one that is shared, I think, by all the schools is guru yoga, um, where you actually visualize your teacher um, as a Buddha. And or they, or they do deity yoga, where you visualize different Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. This can be very elaborate, helped with by using images, very traditional images of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And in both these cases, in both um, guru yoga and in, in, these, in the deity, what's called deity yoga, um, at a certain point, you, after having made the visualization, then you, you imagine this, this image that you have visualized um, coming into your own heart so you take the, the image that you have sort of in front of you or perhaps on the top of your head and you, and you have it, you imagine it coming down into your heart. And the purpose behind this practice is to realize that the guru, the teacher or the Buddha uh, are not separate from you. And of course, this is exactly what Master um, Linji, Master Rinzai, was saying in the quote that I read, that, that the Buddhas and ancestors are us. Of course, when we fully realize this, when we fully understand that we're not separate from our Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, nor are we separate from other sentient beings, then really the terms such as love and faith aren't needed, they're kind of superfluous because we're no longer thinking in terms of self and other. As long as we are alienated, as long as we do feel separate, then um, love and faith are useful, necessary concepts and they can help us to overcome our sense of delusion, our sense of separation. And maybe it's because Zen puts so much emphasis on this absolute perspective, on oneness, that's why uh, perhaps Zen doesn't have much to say about love. It also emphasizes the sudden approach that we can access at any moment our true nature. Whereas in Vajrayana, although there is that, that teaching, there is also the teaching of something more gradual, a, a cultivation. And uh, this is what um, Norbert talks about in the first reading we're going to look at and comment on. And his language is, is a little elaborate, so it just takes, may take people a uh, just a few minutes to get used to his his style. So here's what he, he says. In the undiluted purity of self-appearance, there are no names of love and faith because there is no reality of an object of sentient beings and no substantiality of an object of deities. 
but since all sentient beings grasp at the uncatchable display of appearance, all our phenomena become heavy and substantial, and we create the duality of self and other, the conceptions of ordinary mind, and the karmic delusion of habit. Since all habit belongs to either the deluded panic of samsara or the noble path of enlightenment, it is best to develop the positive habit of the path of enlightenment that always creates positive energy of love and faith until we attain the selfless appearance of the Buddhas. So what he's saying here is, is um, let's cultivate love and faith until we attain this selfless appearance of the Buddhas or undiluted purity. Once we get to that point, then we won't need love and faith. And one of the things he does here in bringing these two terms together, love and faith, is he distinguishes um, faith as being what we feel towards deities or Buddhas, um, beings who are, who are more spiritually advanced than ourselves. And love is what we extend to other sentient beings. Um, and also that it would include sentient beings who are less fortunate than us, but also sentient beings who are more fortunate than us, for whom we often might feel jealousy of both. So the next, um, in the next passage, he, he um, talks about this. Love and faith have the same essence of deep caring. The only difference is that love is aimed towards sentient beings, including those who are less fortunate than we are, and faith is aimed towards sublime beings, including all Buddhas and enlightened guides. The nature of love is to give positive energy to others in order to benefit them and to release them from suffering. The nature of faith is to trust in sublime beings in order to receive the blessings of wisdom energy that benefit, one, that benefit oneself and others. True faith creates the vast love of compassion that benefits countless beings. So there's a lot in this short passage. Um, first thing he says here is... Love and faith have the same essence of deep caring. Love and faith have the same essence of deep caring. One of the um, one of the other uh, teachers that I was. Um, was listening to um, during my retreat was um, Alan Wallace and he's at one point he was talking, he was doing, giving teachings on loving kindness and um, he was talking about the, the, what motivates us when we um, give loving kindness to others and he said that it's essential that you, you see that the person you're directing love to 
is deserving of that love, even if they're uh, somebody quite despicable. And uh, I took some notes on what he was saying. Um, in my journal that I was keeping because it was so timely. This was a teaching that I heard on, the t on Thursday the 10th of November, which was happened to be the day that, that Donald Trump um, was elected. And, and it wasn't that he was actually giving this talk at, at this time. This is, the talk was recorded back in, earlier in the year. So, um, but it was just at the right time for me to hear. So he was saying that loving kindness comes, comes from seeing the lovable quality in the other person. And this is a paraphrase, I think, of what, of what he said. That means being able to see beyond appearances, and we all appear in many different ways, to what abides. Even the most despicable person is not evil 24-7. Imagine that person aged three, or falling in love, or tending their garden, or looking after their dog. His Holiness the Dalai Lama has said that our deepest impulse is caring, even in the bardo, in our worst moments and in our best. We share this with Buddhas and with tyrants and slavers. Caring is deeper than the outer displays, which are like the weather, they come and go. Loving kindness is rooted deeper in reality. When, in, when a person is deeply enlightened, she sees others as herself, as effulgences of her own pristine awareness. So it's easy with somebody like Donald Trump to despise them, but we can be sure that even he, um, or however deluded it may be, however ignorant, um, thinks that he's caring. He's he is caring in some sense in his actions. He thinks it's the the, the right thing to do. Another, another um, some more comments about about what blocks our compassion to somebody like um, Trump. Loving kindness stems from the primal drive of caring, but gets blocked by our grasping, our attachment and aversion. We conflate the person or people with what they are not, their behavior, attitude, appearance. We make the fundamental error of equating the person with his behavior and then reify or fix our view and the flow of energy is impeded. We create our history and that of others and therefore can deconstruct it, remake it. We create our views of, of people out of our thoughts and our judgments. 
And these are, because they're created, they can be deconstructed. So, so if we can, if we can um, understand love and faith as being of the same essence of deep caring, and then also seek to see um, that caring in others, or to see it's to see the sort of the say. the intrinsic worth of every being, however, however um, much we, we hate their, their actions, and their attitudes, and their words. Also in the same passage, um, Norbu talks about um, the, the, the nature of our faith is to trust in symbiote beings in order to receive the blessings of wisdom energy that benefit oneself and others. So he puts the emphasis on our love for these sublime beings um, on what we receive, what we can receive from them. And uh, what this, this reminded me of was the sense that you, you get from reading the sutras of there being um, infinite numbers of beings in our world, in our universe, who have taken the Bodhisattva vow, who've, who've dedicated their lives to benefiting others, whose hearts are filled with love, and they're broadcasting this love constantly. It's like, it's like the radio waves or, or the internet, and it's just a matter of our being able to tune in to this energy, this wisdom energy. It's, it's, it's freely available to us if we turn towards it. You could say that there's no paywall with this stuff. It's there, and we can tap into it. And they, these beings, or this energy, maybe a, um, at times not so, so much a being but a force, um, can respond, can respond to our desires and our prayers. Yasutani Roshi, our main teacher of, of my Dharma grandfather, Kappa Roshi, he um, talked about, uh, this is a teaching, it, was a, it wasn't his own teaching, I think it came from Tendai Buddhism, he talked about um, mutual attraction between Buddhas and sentient beings. Talking about how um, Buddhas and, and Bodhisattvas are attuned to us. Their whole purpose in, in exist, of existence is to, to, to save, to liberate sentient beings. And so naturally they are particularly attuned to those of us who are ripe for liberation, who, are, who have engaged, who have opened their hearts. And we can, we can 
not find this so difficult when you think of the, the kind of the modern era we're in, where all, all kinds of communication can happen at a distance. And I'll just turn to a little booklet that, where he talks about this. It's called Eight Beliefs in Buddhism. And one of these beliefs is this, this mutual attraction between Buddhists and sentient beings. I'd just like to read a little bit of it. Um, he says, because of the developments in science, like radio and television, we are accustomed to being able to hear and see things which are happening far away. In a sense, the term mutual attraction means this kind of long-distance communication. The Japanese words are kano, doko. Kano meaning to feel, o meaning to respond, and doko meaning to interact. Mutual attraction is not the exact equivalent, but the implication is correct. That is, that the interacting can be invisible and take place regardless of distance. Now I guess my talk on mutual attraction will be easily understood. In this instance, however, emphasis will be on the mutual attraction between all Buddhas and sentient beings. I have already explained the fact that all of us have Buddha nature and that many Buddhas do exist, having completely, uh, completely polished their own Buddha natures. However, if there were no mutual attraction between Buddhas and sentient beings, none of us would ever become Buddhas. Even though we may have the seed of the plant, if there is no sunlight or heat or water or soil, that seed would never sprout. We have a seed called Buddha nature, but only when we have the light of the Buddha's wisdom and the water of compassion will our seed grow and become a plant. And then he goes on to um, set out these four different kinds of mutual attraction that can occur between Buddhas and sentient beings. And I think they're very useful things to be reminded of, um, especially when we're struggling or wondering whether our, our practice has any effect on ourselves or in the world. And the first of these four um, in Japanese, meiki meio, and in English, potential motive and a visible response. Here's what Yasutani says. Our enthusiastic desire is inconspicuous, but in our subconscious mind we all are already seeking the Buddha's teaching. This is called meiki, potential motive. Meio refers to the Buddha's teaching, which also is inconspicuous, inconspicuous, but which is continually guiding us. It is like the seed of the plant which has not received the sun's light or heat directly, but which is responding indirectly to the stimulus of the temperature and humidity. Of the four kinds of mutual attraction, this first one, potential motive and inconspicuous response, is the most fundamental. Even though many people apparently do not pay much attention to the teaching of Buddhism, quite a few are seeking the Buddha's way in their subconscious mind. Therefore, the Buddha's invisible response to these persons is important. And when he says um, seeking the Buddha's way in his subconscious mind, it may not even be formulated as that, but, but people um, 
can be just seeking some solace, seeking some way out of suffering, seeing suffering all around and, and questioning in some um, perhaps only barely conscious way why things are like this and how they could be different, how we could relieve suffering. And this questioning, of course, is personal because we suffer ourselves. He goes on to talk about um, the nature of this invisible response to this um, invisible sort of inchoate questioning and, and seeking that many people have. This invisible response comes mainly from the many monks who do zazen by themselves in small temples in the mountains, receiving no visitors but reciting sutras or the great vows for all. It's our uh, four bodhisattvic vows. It also comes from the many great masters who spend their lives in the mountains practicing zazen, but also devoting themselves to this invisible response. These people who are not aware of this honorable work and who can see only the surface of matter are apt to be critical, saying that such, such action has no social significance and that the attitude of these monks and masters is very egotistical. But this is not true. This would apply not only to Buddhist monks and nuns um, uh, working on themselves in, in seclusion, but also to um, orders of, of Christian nuns and monks who, who spend their lives praying and um, s singing the, um, the orders of office. Um, this we, we can't the, the effect of these um, that these people have, or just individuals sitting at home each morning or evening. Um, can't measure this. Um, there's, there's no way of measuring it. But since our mind is one, all minds are interconnected, of course it affects the collective mind, just as the opposite affects it. This, the, um, the negativity, which is a lot, often a lot more visible, has its effects. Was um, hearing about a, a, an item in the U.S. where um, the, uh, hate crimes and uh, shootings have um, gone up in the last few weeks. It's as if people now have permission to hold to hold um, racist views more openly than they did before. Okay, so that's potential motive and invisible response. Second one is potential motive and visible response. Yasutani says, in this case, the Buddha's teaching is visible. For instance, we know that there are many Zazen groups and that lectures on Buddhism are being given in many places. Although it may seem that most people are not interested in these things, in their subconscious mind, they are deeply influenced by these happenings. 
Therefore, do not be discouraged by the fact that there may only be a few people attending your Zazen meetings. If you think that the meetings are having little effect, you are wrong. Although you may feel that your effort is in vain, you had better be patient, since many people in this world are being influenced by what you are doing, whether they realize it or not. It is like the seed under the soil, wanting to grow because the season has come. Though it hasn't yet sprouted, all that is needed is light and water. Therefore, commit yourself to this inconspicuous effort, having strong faith and joy. Your effort will certainly be effective. He's calling on us to have faith and joy too. How, how wonderful that even handful of people should get together to purify their minds. The third one is visible motive and potential response. He says, our eagerness is showing. We seek a leader for our Zazen but cannot find one. We must not be put off by superficial and temporary conditions, however. As long as we have enthusiasm and continue to study and practice, our understanding of Buddhism will become clearer and deeper. And that will be sufficient cause for having a good leader. No leader will appear by himself. Nothing happens accidentally, but an enthusiastic student will cause the arrival of a good teacher. This is like a plant which has already sprouted and is eager to grow, but which is not getting direct sunlight. If the plant is able to endure the inconvenience, surely the rain will come and someone will transplant it to a propitious place where there will be an abundance of sunshine. Or to use the same analogy, you could say that the, the plant may grow into, this, into the light, grow in the direction of the light. We get to a point where we realize that we need the teacher and then we find him or her. The fourth, the fourth one is visible motive and visible response. This is the fourth kind of mutual attraction between Buddhas and sentient beings. It is like the sprouted plant which is receiving the light and heat that it needs to blossom. The more one's enthusiasm increases, the more the Buddha's guidance will be given and the more one can begin to open this, his or her mind's eye. Or as, um, or as Alan Wallace says, when we, when we aspire to the truth, then reality will rise up to meet us. The necessary conditions will, will, will come forth if we have a set, sincere intent. Then he ends um, this, this chapter with a, with a story about um, mutual attraction between Buddhas and sentient beings. Um, it's about a man named Sutta. Suru Roka. Suru Oka. 
This gentleman was not interested in Buddhism at first, but one summer he took his child, who was sick, to Kamakura, one of the Buddhist centers of Japan. While he was there, he occasionally visited the famous Zen temple, Kenchoji, since it had an atmosphere of serenity and neatness. And it's interesting, this is uh, Roshi Kaplow's first exposure um, to uh, Buddhism was just this, when he was um, a recorder for the, the war crimes in Tokyo, um, in his breaks, he would go and sit in the, in the public part of, of Zen temples and was, was um, deeply affected by the, 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 the atmosphere there. And this was to get his curiosity going um, so that he met with um, Daisuke Suzuki there in Japan and then also went to his le lectures back in, in New York when he had returned to the States. Garden is, is um, an expression of the teaching. So he went there just to enjoy the gardens and didn't have any intention of, of um, practicing Buddhism or doing, doing Zazen. Yasutani continues, it would appear on the surface that the temple could offer nothing to this kind of visitor but we must not overlook potential motive and invisible response. Something was affecting him um, at an unconscious level. When the summer was over, just before going back to Tokyo, Mr. Tsuruoka visited Sugawara Roshi, the master of Kenchoji. The master did not speak about anything concerning Buddhism or Zen. He simply served Mr. Tsuruoka a cup of tea and gave him a small sutra book. Mr. Tsuruoka was not much impressed with the gift, thinking the gesture to be the ordinary routine of the temple, which may well have been. So naturally he did not examine its content. When he returned to his home, he put the sutra book on his family altar. This was potential motive and visible response. A few years passed. One summer day he was taking a nap on a reclining chair near the altar. When he awakened, he took the sutra book down from the altar to read, wishing to pass some time. This particular sutra explained about the great love parents give to their children and how many kindnesses and good actions they thus deserve. Mr. Tsuruoka was very much surprised to discover that sutras teach such humane and important aspects of life. He immediately sent a messenger to the Buddhist bookstore and bought a commentary on the sutra, which he very thoroughly read. The more he read, the more he realized how profound and influential the sutra was. Although he was still not receiving direct guidance from a master, his having received the sutra book from the Sugawara Roshi was invisible guidance, hence visible motive and invisible response. Mr. Tsuruoka soon realized, however, that to study by himself not only was insufficient, but also could lead to misunderstanding. So every month he visited the, Abri, the abbot of Zojoji, 
visible motive, and visible response. His cause and effect now well ripened, Mr. Tsuruoka finally started Zazen practice under Sugawara Roshi's guidance. And uh, then Yasutani says that he heard this story directly from um, this uh, Tsuruoka-san. And then he gives a quote from Mencius, the, the Confucian sage. Whatever thing is accomplished is not accomplished by, by that day alone. It is accomplished by the causes. Whatever thing is accomplished is not accomplished by that day alone. It is accomplished by the causes. Nothing can be done in one day or night, and needless to say, nothing happens of itself. It's a whole lot of causes and conditions have to come together, and um, a ripening is, ne is needed. And we can, we can remind ourselves of this, both in how we regard um, other people's spiritual development, but also our own, to have faith in this, this, this process of ripening that, that has its own laws, that takes its own time. Our job really is, is just to be open to it. Well, our time is, is uh, up, so we'll stop here and recite the four vows.